Good morning. This story began a long time ago. A long, long time ago. All the way back in the garden, when there was just Adam and Eve and God, and the serpent snuck in, and he challenged God's word. Did God really say that? Is that what God really said? And he began to question God. And from then on, not only Satan, but his minions have gone out to deceive God's people, to lie. Jesus tells a parable in the Gospel of Matthew. He said, a man went out and he had a servant and they sowed a wheat field. But his enemy came. And the way to destroy your enemy was to do it economically and financially. And so what he did is he came in and he sowed weeds among the wheat. And when the servants realized what was going on, they wanted to pull it up, pull up the weeds. But the enemy was crafty. He didn't just plant any weed. He planted one that would look like the wheat through most of its growth. So the owner of the field said, no, don't go in and pull up the weeds because you might accidentally pull up some of the wheat as well. Leave it. Because on the day of harvest, we're going to be able to tell the difference between the wheat and the weeds. And that was a picture of, of what the Christian life was going to be like in churches around the world. There are always going to be the false believers that come in. And we're not going to know who they are. They're going to come in and, and we're probably going to like them. They're going to go to our Bible studies. They're going to participate. They may even elevate to, to positions of teaching and positions of authority. But they're false. And in the Apostle John's day, in one of his little churches, that very thing had happened. False teachers had come in, and they were saying things that weren't just a little bit crazy, but they were saying things like Jesus never really came in the flesh. He was only spirit. It was kind of like the early thoughts of Gnosticism. He wasn't really here as a man. And they began to tell people, well, there's a different way to be saved. There's a different path to salvation, not what you've been told. So the Apostle John, who is an old man, but he is a fierce shepherd of the sheep. He knew that wolves had crept in. And he had to deal with the wolves. But at the same time, he was a shepherd pastor. And he wanted to comfort and to encourage the sheep. So in this letter, the Apostle John is writing to the church, and in chapter 5, we kind of see why, because he says it right out. He says, I write these things to you, that you may believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. You see, the false teachers were there giving a different gospel. And the Apostle John had to deal with it. Well, in chapter 4, and that's where we are today, 
the apostle is prompted to answer two questions that are raised by the mention of the Holy Spirit. So at the end of chapter 3, he mentions the Spirit. He says, and by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. And so there are a couple of questions that arise from this. He says, well, number one would be, how do we know that we have the Spirit of God? How do we know we have the right spirit? Jared took us through this, verses 1 through 6 of chapter 4, a couple of weeks ago. And the answer is this. We know that we have the Spirit of God if we have the right theology about Christ. So we need to pay attention to doctrine. We need to pay attention to theology. If we have the right doctrine and the theology, we know that we have the right spirit. The second question goes back a little deeper in chapter 3 and asks, well, how do we know if we have been born from God then? How do, we, how do we know? And yet it's still the mention of the Spirit that prompts the apostle to answer this question for us. The answer begins in verse 7, which was covered last week. And the answer is, we know that we have been born from God if we have authentic love for one another. There's your answer. We have been born from God if our love for one another is genuine, if it's authentic. So those questions had come up. They're being answered. But at the end of verse 12 here, he says, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So just like at the end of chapter 13 that led to the whole discussion in chapter 14, this verse 12 leads us into the discussion that we see in verses 13 through 21. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. And again, the apostle is actually raising more questions as he's answering questions. At the end of chapter 3, the questions were, and by this we know that he abides in us. We, and uh, so how do we know if we have the Spirit? Chapter 4 answered that. But now, how do I know if God's love abides in me? See, he says here, he says, if we love one another, God's love abides in, in us. How do we know? How do we know if we're saved? How can we be sure? And that's what the apostle is going to, to begin to answer this. And in the, in the next several verses, he's going to answer that question. We're going to see three things. He's going to say, first, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is evidence of regeneration. Second, he's going to say the confession of Jesus as the Son of God is evidence. And finally, abiding in God's love is the third evidence of salvation. But there's a second question in there as well. What does authentic or perfect love look like? How do I know if my love is being perfected? And again, there are three things in his response. Number one, we're going to have confidence in salvation because we are children of God. Number two, we rely on the source of love, 
and that is Christ. And then number three, we'll love our brother. So I began looking at this and I noticed that in these two sections, beginning in verse 13, then again in verse 17, it begins by the words, by this. And when he does this, he's now explaining how we can know these things. How can we know? And what he's not saying, he's not saying that this is required for salvation. He's saying this is the evidence of salvation for you. When you see these things, when these things are true, that's evidence of your salvation. And that's what he wants us to pay attention to. He's encouraging the flock. The false teachers have come in. The false teachers have said, no, the way of the salvation is different. We have the secret. Don't listen to those apostles. But the apostle John wants to set them straight. These aren't the only sections that begin by this. When John uses this in the letter, he has a little pattern. In chapter 2, he says, by this we know that we have come to know him. And that's if we keep his commandments. Again, in chapter 2, by this we may know that we are in him because we ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Chapter 3, by this it is evident who are the children of God and, and the children of the devil. It says, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Chapter 3 again, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. We know that we are in the truth because whatever we ask, we receive from him. We know that he abides in us because he has given us his spirit. We know the spirit of God because we confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. We know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Whoever listens to us knows God. Whoever is not from God does not listen. And now we see, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. So in verse 13, he says, by this we know. And this, this word for know doesn't mean that I've been taught this, that this was well, something I learned in school. It was a lesson. It was a textbook or that it was something handed down. This is the experiential no. They knew this because they experienced it. And so he's saying, by this we know that the Spirit abides in us. In, in the beginning of this book, when the actual physical birth and, and the life of Christ that he came in the flesh was being questioned. The apostle John is saying, look, here's what I know. I heard him, I saw him, and I touched him. That's how I know that Jesus was real. In the same way, the believers who come after that, who were not there when Jesus walked on the earth, that's you and me. We know because we have the spirit of God who is very real. We have the Holy Spirit. So the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is evidence of our salvation. In Ephesians, it says, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel, 
of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Did you see that? We are sealed with the Holy Spirit. That seal is the evidence. And that seal means nobody can tamper with it. That seal means that no one's breaking in and stealing you back. You've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. I remember years ago, I was doing some missionary work in Russia. And, and there was an old lady. She heard the gospel. And she responded favorably. And so we were rehearsing the gospel. And I'm doing this through an interpreter. And this woman is an older woman. And I'm thinking, she may have been there pre-communism even. And her fear, though, was what happens if the devil comes and tries to steal me back? And what glorious response could we give to her? You've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. There's no one more powerful than God. You're safe. You're secure because of who God is. In Romans chapter 8, it says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So this is, this is it. He's laying it out. He's saying, look, those go together. If you are saved, you have the Holy Spirit. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not saved. And this is what the apostle John is saying. Here's the evidence that you have how you can know that you are saved, and that is that you have the Holy Spirit. And this promised Holy Spirit was promised long before Christ. In Ezekiel, he says, Therefore say, thus saith the Lord, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. And when you come there, they will remove from it all its detestable things and all its abominations. And I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. We know from Joel chapter 2, the promised spirit is coming. So the Old Testament, they were looking forward to this day. Now, it was going to be a new covenant day. And we, being new covenant believers, are recipients of that we can actually have the Holy Spirit indwell us. How amazing is that? And that's evidence. We have a tremendous privilege of having the Holy Spirit indwell us. It's evidence of our salvation, not a condition of it. This is all God's doing. But how do I know if I have the Holy Spirit? I can't see or touch the Holy Spirit. In fact, in John chapter 3, Jesus said the Spirit is like the wind. It blows here and it blows there. You don't know where it's coming from. You don't know where it's going. You just see the effects of it. So how do we know that we have the Spirit within us? Well, we're going to keep reading in John chapter 4. Verse 14 
And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So when we are saved and we have the Holy Spirit, we have the correct doctrine of Christ. We have the correct theology of who Jesus is. He is the son of the living God. He is the savior of the world. And when we confess that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in us and we in God. This is the gift of God that he gives to us. Now this all makes sense. If we remember back when Jesus was walking the earth with his disciples and, and he was getting ready to go to Jerusalem. This was going to be it, his final trip to Jerusalem. But before that, he took the disciples way up in the northeast part of Israel to a part that most good Jewish people wouldn't go. You see, he took them to a place called Caesarea Philippi. And it's there that Peter makes his great confession. You see, Caesarea Philippi is at the foot of, of Mount Hermon. And going back into the Old Testament, when there were the two nations of Judah and Israel, this is where pagan worship, and specifically Baal worship, was prominent. It's a place of wickedness. And there's this town that was built there. And later when the Greeks conquered, it became known and it became dedicated to the Greek gods, to the Greek fertility gods, and specifically to the Greek god Pan. And outside of town and just outside of town on the hill, there's this great cliff face, and you can go there today and see this. There's a large cave that goes into that cliff. And in the side of that cliff, they carved out these little places where they would put their, their idols of these false gods, these, these fertility gods, and, and in their pagan minds... These pagan gods would retreat into that mountain for the winter and then come out in the spring to bless their harvest because they were the fertility gods. When the Romans conquered the Greeks, Herod Philippi rebuilt that city and named it after himself, therefore to Caesarea Philippi. And yet the people began uh, continued to worship the Greek gods. And they continued that day, and this is where Jesus took them. Like I said, this would be someplace a good Jewish person would not go. It would be like going into the red light district of a city. You just don't go there. There's only trouble. Nonetheless, with this in mind, Jesus asked his disciples, it says, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do you say the son of man is? Or who do people say? And, they, and he said, some say you're John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But he said to them, who do you say that I am? And of course, as we can all imagine, the first one to speak up, would be Simon Peter. And he does, and he speaks up, and he replies, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Boom. It doesn't get any more theologically correct than that. 
You are the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him. He said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. In other words, that's great, Peter. You nailed it. But let's also get something straight. You could never figure that out on your own. The only way you would know that is if God the Father in heaven revealed it to you. So when we follow the logic of this, that we can know that we abide in him, in other words, we can know that we are saved because we have the Spirit. And well, how do I know I have the Spirit? Because I'm confessing the right things. And I cannot do that unless I have the Spirit of God. Now, people can say those words, but this is more than just a saying, and, and we're going to get to that here in a moment. But this is the great confession, and Peter did not figure it out. Figure it out. This, this was knowledge that was given to him, and it's no different for any other believer. The Apostle John begins verse 14 with the emphatic. Now, I know in here it says, and we have seen... But this, this word we is emphatic, and you might even read it, that we ourselves have seen. And now he's talking about the apostles. He said, we ourselves, the apostles, have seen this. And what did they see? We testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. In other words, we were there for his ministry on earth. We were there when he was taken and crucified. And we were there when he rose from the dead. When Jesus Christ rose from the dead, what more proof is needed? He predicted his own death. He predicted how long he would be in the grave. And he raised himself from the dead. A man who was killed, who raised himself from the dead, and said he came to, to save us from our sins. In the Apostle John's mind and in my mind, that's very strong evidence that everything he says is true. That he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and he died for our sins. Now, if you're able to sincerely confess this truth, it's evidence of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Now, confession does not mean we're claiming something to be true. I'm not standing up here claiming this. I'm not making that claim. What I'm doing is I'm admitting something is true. It is truth. I don't make it true. It's already true, and I'm simply confessing that and declaring that to you that, yes, that is true. I'm saying I'm convinced, and based on my conviction, I will trust Christ as my Savior. It's a declaration of allegiance Christ is king and I am his servant. My rules, my wants, my desires and my plans no longer matter. I only concern myself with the will of my king and that's what I'm saying. And when we do this and we have that right understanding of who Jesus Christ is, the son of the living God, the Holy Spirit abides in us and we in him. And in verse 16, we're going to see the outworking of the indwelling and the confession. Verse 16 says, So we have come to know 
and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. We come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. In other words, we're saying it's all true. All of it. All of what Christ said is true. I can't sit up here and pick something I like and discard something I don't like. Thomas Jefferson, President of the United States, did that. He didn't want to confess that Jesus Christ was the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And so I have a little copy from like 1904 of what is known as the Jefferson Bible. I have it for historical purposes. But Jefferson, while he was president, did not believe that Jesus Christ was the son of the living God. So when you read the Gospels, it's hard to get away from that. So what he did is he carved out and, and cut out the moral teachings of Christ. He said Jesus Christ was a moral person, so I'm going to cut that out. And he actually has the Gospels where any miracle of Christ, any claim of deity of Christ has been removed. And he only has the moral teachings. And it's known as the Jefferson Bible. And in the early 1900s, one of the historians just printed a bunch of copies, gave them to congressmen and women to, uh, to hand out. And over the years, I got a, my hands on a copy. But he denied the essence. Now, did he believe Jesus Christ existed? Yes. Jesus Christ indeed was human. He walked in this earth. And he was a great moral teacher. But that's it. We can't stop there. That's not the confession that we make. The confession that we make is, it's all true. So what is the love that God has for us? Well, it was described in verse 9. It says, Jesus himself who came so that, that we might live through him. So what is that love that God has for us? It's all the wonderful benefits that we can have now because of Christ. In two words, it's abundant life. All of what Christ has, he's offered to us, and we can have it. And that's because of the work he had done, and that demonstrates his love for us. How great a love would that be? And yet that's the evidence that we have. So because of this, our own lives can now be characterized by love. We look back into the Gospel of John, chapter 13, and this is, this is one of my favorite passages, and, and it's favorite for a couple of reasons. But it says, a new commandment I give to you that you should love one another. Even as I have loved you, so must you love one another. And by this, all men will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. And honestly, as a young believer, I struggled with this passage. I struggled with that. I thought, how is it possible that I can love others as Christ has loved me? That just seems impossible. And I struggled with it. I would try to go on in my Bible reading and read something else, something that was a little easier for me. I even talked to other people 
who I learned now that they weren't the strongest of believers if they were believers because they said, well, that's kind of like a goal. I said, but it has the word commandment, not the word goal. This is what I'm commanded to do. How can I love others as Christ has loved us, as he has loved me? And the example was given to us at the beginning of chapter 13. On the night when the Lord got his disciples, gathered his disciples together to celebrate the Passover meal with them in the upper room, he brought them all together. And they came in. And this would be his last meal with them. We call it the Last Supper. We celebrate it as the Lord's Supper today. And as they are all getting ready for this meal, there was one thing that was missing. And the one thing missing was the lowly servant who would have to wash everybody's feet. Because you see, walking along the grimy streets of Jerusalem in sandals, your feet could become pretty disgusting. So a lowly service servant would come and wash the feet. To their shock and to Simon Peter's horror, Jesus himself took a towel and a basin of water and began to wash the disciples' feet. How did Christ love me? How did he love the disciples? He served them. How did he love me? He served me. He died on the cross for me. So how do I love others? I serve others. That's what he's called us to do. Love characterizes the life of the new covenant believer. You see, people cannot see the Holy Spirit inside of me. The best x-rays and MRIs can't do it. You can't know, and I can make a confession that Jesus is, is the Christ the son of the living God. I can say that over and over again, but you still can't see the Holy Spirit in me. You can hear my testimony, but when, when people see us love one another as Christ loves us, that makes the impact. So we should ask ourselves, how are we doing? When unbelievers look at us and they listen to us, do they, say, do they see something greater or something different? Or do we look and sound like the world? 1993, I went on my first short-term mission trip. I volunteered to be a leader taking some youth overseas. And I was given this team, and, and I didn't know anybody on the team, but I had 25 teenagers. I had a female co-leader. There was another team and some other leaders, and we went to Botswana, Africa. By the way, I love Botswana. I think it's the most polite society on the face of the earth, if you've ever been to Botswana. Great place. We go to Botswana, Africa, and we're staying in this, in this seminary outside of the city, capital city of Habarom, and uh, and that's where we're living. That's where we're eating together. Then we'd go out and do ministry. And one of the young men on my team, and uh, his name was George, 15-year-old um, boy who um, seemed to be, um, I don't know, annoying everybody, and especially the young ladies. 
So after about a week of this, the other leaders and everybody's coming to me, they're like, Rich, George belongs to you. You got to fix George. I can't fix George. But that's still my responsibility. And so one morning we're getting together, and every morning we had an hour of quiet time is what we called it. You might hear it called devotionals or devos, uh, but a time dedicated to some prayer and time in the word where you can be alone with God. And so I thought, this is a great time. Let me grab George. So I said, hey, George, I'd like to have quiet time with you today. And he said, sure. So we went off together. We were by ourselves. And, and there I learned he'd actually never had a quiet time before in his life. He had no idea what he's supposed to do. So no wonder he's getting up and around and annoying people and bothering people because he didn't know what to do during quiet time. So it was an awesome opportunity to have some time with him. But I had to bring up the uncomfortable subject. I said, George, I, I need to talk to you about something else. I said, George, um, I'm getting complaints that, you know, attention span, annoying others, all these things going on. I said, boy, that's uh, just causing some problems on not only in our team but the other team as well, and, and, and we got to do something about this. And so I thought about it and, and so on, and he said, you know what? You know, you're always getting into trouble and annoying people. He said, but I have a plan. I'm going to give you a quote. These were his actual words. He actually said this to me. I love it. He said, if it works, my teachers at school are going to want to know what it is. So this wasn't unique to George being just on a mission field. So I said, here's the plan, George. I said, okay, what I want you to do is get to know the other team members. And I taught him a little bit of an acrostic, or not acrostic, a little memory tool to learn how to get to know somebody, to find out where they're from, learn about their family, learn about their hobbies, learn about what they like to do, things like that. And I said, but on top of that, George, this is like, this is like the super secret part of this mission. I want you to serve them without them knowing it. I said, you can come and tell me what you did. This will be between you, me, and God. That's it. But I want you to serve them. And he's like, how do I do that? I said, well, you know, like when we're eating together at the cafeteria and everybody has to take their, their dirty plates up and take it to the kitchen and there's going to be a crew assigned to, to, to wash the dishes and such. I said, just look around. If anyone else is finished, can I take that for you? And just take theirs too. And maybe when you get to the kitchen, if it looks like the, the crew is getting a little bit behind, maybe you just hop in for a few moments. Let me help you catch up. And you, you help dry or you help wash or you help put away or, or whatever. I said, and out, we're out and about. You know, one of the things we had to do is carry our own battery-operated speaker that was portable, and it was heavy. So we had two guys assigned to carry it at all times. I said, every now and again, just, hey, can I spell you for two minutes? I'll just take this for a couple minutes just give you a little break. I know it's not my turn, but let me give you a little break. Well, he began doing that. And he began seeing ways to serve others. And he'd come and tell me. He's like, yeah, this is, this is what I did. I'm like, yeah, that's actually pretty cool. Never thought of that. But that's a great idea. And in less than a week, I had people coming to me saying, there's something different about George. I don't know what it is. There's something different. George had learned, actually, the joy of serving others. Probably was pretty cool that it was our little secret mission, and that was cool. But he had begun serving others 
and others didn't know what it was. They knew it was different. You see, even in this group of, of Christian teenagers on a mission trip there to, to do missionary work in the Lord's name, George was standing out as different because he was serving the other people on the team. You see, when, when Christ says that new commandment that we love one another as he has loved us, so must we love one another. And by this, all men will know you are my disciples. If you have love for one another like that, if you serve one another and people see that, they're going to say, that's different. That's not like what I see normally. What's going on? That was almost 30 years ago, and I wonder where George is today and how he's doing. But he's a great example of, of serving one another. Love in action changes things. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So let me ask that very uncomfortable question. Nope, it's not about you. How am I doing? Am I loving you? Do you see the love of Christ in my life? Am I pouring the word of God into your lives? I confess uh, I could number many of my failures. I don't love you as Christ loved me. Forgive me for that because I am called to love you like that. And I want to love you like that. I want to serve. Because, see, I've got a great example. And the cost of that for me is really nothing. It's really nothing. Because Christ has already paid it all. So a very sincere question. How am I doing? Talk to me. Not now. We'll wait till later. And that leads to the second question in this that's being answered. How is love being perfected in me? Now in chapter 13, we read this. It's before the Passover. It says, now before the feast of the Passover, and remember, this is, this is the, the Last Supper. This is when it's all going to happen that we just talked about a little bit ago. When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. To the end of what? To the end of his life? No, he rose again from the dead. He is still alive today. Jesus Christ is alive and sitting on the throne. He loved them to the end, meaning he loved them with perfect love. That goal that we have, that what we're told here is to, to perfect love. Christ has done that. He has perfected it. We can see it in him. 
You remember our working definition of love? It seeks out and desires the best for others. What was best for us? What was best for us in Christ's day was a gruesome, bloody torture and death of Jesus. That's what it was. It was the only time in all of eternity that God the Father turned his back on God the Son. Why? Because God the Son took my sin upon himself. And my sin is hideous. And God the Father turned his face away. Perfect fellowship for all eternity. Except when Christ took my sin upon himself. So what was best for me and what was best for you was for Christ to suffer. He not only suffered unimaginable physical pain, he had to endure mockery and shame. He was punched and spat upon. And he had a crown of thorns placed upon his head in scorn for what he said as they taunt him that he was king of the Jews. Christ loved them to the end. He loved with perfect love. So now we get to the, the second question and we get it answered. How is love perfected in me? And again, this, this begins with one of those by this statements. It says, I, I do not think there are many believers among us who are trying not to love. I don't, I don't think that's true about us. At the same time, most if not all of us are trying to perfect the love of Christ. How does that happen? Verse 17 and 18. It says, by this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love can for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Love is perfected because as he is, so are we in this world. We don't belong to this world. We belong to God the Father. We are his. And all the promises of God to the new covenant believers belong to us. We are now free from the penalty of sin. The bottom line, we are now children of God. As Jesus Christ is the son of the living God, we too are now children of God. John chapter 1, it says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. In Romans chapter 8, it says the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And in 1 John chapter 3, it says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God and so we are. How is love perfected? We have been made children of God. Wow. And as children of God, we do not fear judgment. 
In fact, the text says that we are to have confidence in that day. Now, the longer I live and the more I, I mature in Christ and as a believer, the more of my own sin that I see in my life. And I would find it hard to say that love is being perfected in me because I see that. But even so, my confidence is not in me at all. My confidence that I am being perfected in love is because God has promised it. He's called me a child of God. He says that I belong to him. It's with that confidence I stand up here and I can say that. This is not by me, by Christ alone. So we do not have to fear punishment and judgment. Now, as children of God, we will face discipline when we sin. The Father disciplines those, those whom he loves. If you're a child of God and you sin and you won't repent of it, God brings discipline. It's for our good, though. It's for our benefit. He disciplines whom he loves, but we don't have to fear punishment for our sins. Romans 8 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. You see that? No condemnation. We are free from that. John chapter 10, My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. And they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So we don't fear judgment. In Proverbs, it says we are to have a healthy fear of the Lord. It says in, in Proverbs 1.7, fear of Yahweh is the beginning of knowledge. Wisdom and instruction fools despise. So there is a healthy fear that we have for God, but it's not of judgment. It's not of what is to come. I remember sitting around family table years ago, and it's that common uh, phrase that you sometimes hear. And we were talking about somebody who was um, uh, very ill, and, uh, and, and, and that phrase was mentioned, and it said it's better than the alternative. Being, being very ill is better than the alternative. And I spoke up. This was my family sitting around the table, and I said, I want you to know something. The alternative for me is far better than anything here. Should the Lord call me home, I'm not looking back. I can have confidence that that is what God has for me. Good things await. I don't fear judgment. I don't fear that day. But there's a healthy fear, like the fear of a child for their parent. Children need to know who makes the rules and who they need to obey. And they need to know their consequences for disobedience. But they also know who to run to when they're scared. They know who to cry out for when they're lost. And they know who will care for them when they're injured. Yet they also know they will disappoint when they disobey. And we have a similar reverence for God, but not a fear of judgment. And this is, with this is also a reminder 
when I'm loving my fellow man, like I'm called to love others, when I'm loving my fellow man, I don't have to fear the law, say, for the law of murder. When I'm loving someone, the chances of me murdering them goes way down. But when I let unrighteous anger enter my heart and dwell, I let it pitch a tent in my heart, begin having dinner with it, and I treat it well, then I must fear. But I don't have to have fear when perfect love is in my life. So we must seek perfect love. It casts out all fear. Fear and love cannot coexist. We know that we are children of God, and therefore we do not have to fear the day of judgment. In verse 19, John gives us another confidence booster. Read it to us. It says, we love because he first loved us. He first loved us. And Romans says, while we were yet, while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare to even die. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So if you still have any doubt about disappointing God so much that he's going to quit loving you, we need to remember that he died for us while we were still yet sinners, while we were not even wanting to love him, while we were still enemies of his, when we were hostile to him, when we loved this world more than we loved God, that's what he died for us. So there's nothing I'm going to do now to disappoint him, to remove his love from me. The love we have all comes from God. Uh, years ago when I started getting into youth ministry, and this is a long time ago, I looked at these teenagers and I thought, really? Um, but I began praying for love. I said, Lord, you have to show me how to love them because I don't know how. And... Uh, the Lord gave me such a great love for, for teenagers. I did uh, youth ministry for, for well more than a decade, made four mission trips overseas with teenagers, had done a lot, and it was because of the love God gave to me, nothing in my own heart. And we don't fear our love for God is not being returned to us. See, when God first loved us, it, see, it's not like a relationship. You know, you get into a relationship with someone of the opposite sex and you're, you're wondering, Who's going to be the first one that says, I love you, and then wait to hear if they hear back? We don't have to worry about that. God has already done that. He's already said that. He's already told us he loves us. He's not going to reject us. We do not have to fear. And then naturally, the affection for others flows from a heart filled with knowledge and gratitude of God's love for us. We have the parable of the wicked tenant. I'll briefly discuss this, but the king was going to call into account everybody who owed him money. He calls his servant in, and he brings one servant in, and the servant owed him an astronomical, an astronomical amount of money. There was no way this servant could ever repay. And the king is like, I'm going to throw you and your wife and your family all in prison because you can't pay your debts. And the man said, 
I'm sorry, this, this man owed a little bit of money. Apologize. Owed a little bit of money. And, and uh, the man said, please have mercy and I'll, I'll pay it back. I'll do my best. I'll get that money for you. So the king had mercy and let him go. Boy, I got that all wrong. I should have read the text. <laughs> I have it printed out here. It was a lot of money. I'm way ahead of myself. But anyway, the king had mercy on this man who owed a ton of money. And the man's released. He goes out and he sees another servant who owes him a little bit of money. And uh, the man says, hey, give me time. I'll pay it back. And what does this man do? He has him thrown into prison. So how can someone receive forgiveness for such a great debt? And then turn around for someone who owes such a small debt and hold them, you know, to account, to be offended. And that's the point that, that Christ is making here, or that John is making here of Christ. He first loved us. We don't earn any of this. Finally, John is going to show us what this is going to look like, verses 20, 21. He says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has, he has seen whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. All right, here's the picture that we have of this. How can we say that we love God who we've never seen when there are people like you right out here who I can see and yet I refuse to love? If I say I love God, knowing everything he's done for me, and yet I can't turn around and love you, Scripture says I'm a liar. I don't love God. We should have the same love for one another as we claim to have for God. I don't want to pile on here, but verse 21 says this is a command. We have to do this. But the good news is everything we just discussed. Because you see, God first loved us. He's put his spirit in us. We are children of God. And we can do that. But let me wrap this, before I wrap it up, one other thing. It says that we are to love our brother. Who is your brother? It means all people. Jesus answered a lawyer when Jesus talked about the commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. And the Jewish lawyer tried to define who the neighbor really was. He wanted to limit the scope of this requirement to love your neighbor. So Jesus answered with a parable of the Good Samaritan. And after the parable, Jesus asked the lawyer, which one proved to be a neighbor to the man? I love this. The lawyer can't even mention the Samaritan's name. He just says, the one who showed mercy. And these were Jesus' final words to the lawyer. You go and do likewise. That's for us. So what do we learn? Well, number one, the confession that Jesus is the Son of God. What do you say about Jesus? Some religions say, oh, he's a God among other gods, or he is a prophet or a great teacher only. Some believe that he existed but was not God or deity. What do you say about Jesus? Is he the Christ, 
the son of the living God and everything that comes with that. We have to have right doctrine and theology about who Jesus is. Number two, we need to get busy. How do we prepare ourselves for the day of judgment? Well, on that day of judgment, I will not give an account for my sins because Jesus has died and paid for my sins. I will give an account for how I lived as a believer, but not for my sins. There will be others, though, at the great white judgment throne who will give an account. Our job is to get out there. Our job is to get into the fray of battle. Yes, people will ridicule us. They will mock us. They will even hate us. They will persecute us. It doesn't matter. Get into the battle. Suffer some wounds and battle scars. It's all worth it. Take the fight to the enemy. When Jesus was standing at Caesarea Philippi, and that cave represented the path to the underworld and all these pagan gods and the path to hell itself, what did Jesus say? The gates of hell cannot prevail. We cannot lose. We will get beat up. We'll get wounded. We'll have some scars. But we don't lose. We need to get into the fight. And then finally, the obvious one, to love others. We're called to love one another. If we struggle with that, I encourage you to pray. I encourage you to study scripture. Study the life of Christ. How did he live? How did he love? What did he do? Study Christ and learn how to love. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you are gracious, you are kind and merciful. We thank you that you have given us your word to teach us and to show us. But Lord, as believers, we thank you that you have given us your spirit to indwell us. Lord, you have called us children of God so that we can have love perfected in us. But God, we confess that too often we try on our own and we fail miserably. So we pray, Lord, that you would do mighty things in us. May we submit to your will. Lord, may we just follow you as the servants that we are. Help us, O oh God, we pray. We ask all of this through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen.